Welcome to the Western Ba'ul podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of this series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice of the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of these talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Cultivating the View that Everything is in Transit, a Consideration of Death in the Spiritual Traditions. The talk was given by Vijay Fedorshak on July 25, 2020, in Prescott, Arizona. BJ is a psychotherapist and author of Shadow on the Path and Father and Son. He has organized events including conferences, Baal Theater Company performances, and the Saturday Night Talk series on spiritual teaching and practice. BJ Fedorshak. I have a teacher, his name is Lee Loswick. He passed away 10 years ago. I learned so much from him. And uh, one of the things that he said about the subject of death, uh, he spoke about so many subjects during his life pertinent to um, living a spiritual life. But he said that death brings an end to everything relative. Wow. We know that on some level. Some people might disagree. Some people believe that we continue as we are into another realm. But if we look around, we see that that's inconsistent with reality because things die and life moves on. Every situation that we've been in is in the past and isn't coming back. And so we can look at this in our culture and think that that's morbid to even consider the subject of death. What's the point? You know, we'll die sooner or later anyway. But maybe there's more that we can uh, learn from really considering life as it is. So to live from this point of view that death brings the end to everything relative, we could, we could say this as a cliche, but living that from that point of view is like almost unknown to my way of looking at it. Because really what we try to do as human beings, certainly myself included, is to try to solidify ourselves, to secure ourselves, to, to make sure that things in our life are set up in a way that we're safe and secure. And, you know, that makes sense that we would do that. But we are attached to this in a primal way that the spiritual path addresses. You know, most people, it seems to me, live in denial of death or in terror of it as if it's the worst thing that could happen. You know, denial like... We don't want to have conversations about it or really look at it. The way that people die in this, what Stephen Jenkinson called a death forward culture, is without a lot of us having uh, hands-on experience or eyewitness experience. I mean, I really never witnessed anyone dying until recently. I had gone to wakes, of course, but death was not really part of my direct living experience. You know, in terms of what's going on these days in our culture, in terms of COVID-19, there's a whole segment of society that minimizes the issue. And yet, I just read yesterday that there were 15 nuns in a convent who all died from this. You know, on the other hand, it's... um, You know, the way that we approach death is very um, sensationalistic in the media. I come from New York, so, oh, my God. Like, I mean, you just turn on the news, and it's one thing after another after another. It's like, if it wasn't sad, it's comical in a way. It could be seen that way because things never change. 
you know, in some cultures, that is much more out of the open and accepted. This isn't meant to diminish the certain circumstance that we live in, as if others, other situations are so much better or anything. But, you know, to look at the, the, that objectively, I have traveled to India five or six times, and I'm always blown away that death is so out in the open. The first time I went to one of the burning gaps in Varanasi, I stood for hours mesmerized by the scene below at the main burning gap in the city where um, people, you know, dead people had been brought through the narrow alleyways of the town to the shore and family members would gather around and um, do their ritual practices and set the body on fire and sit there quietly. You know, I just went there um, just a couple of years ago with my adult children. And <laughs> we're walking past, there are several gaps where these um, burnings happen. And, um, you know, one of them is not nearly as um, popular as the, the main burning gap. And the people who don't have a lot of money go to that one because it's, they don't have the money to pay for all the things that go on at the and we were, I didn't even realize we were there. We just walked past it, and there were bodies kind of lined up in queue, waiting. This is a, it's a deep consideration for me, like given some of the circumstances that have particularly just occurred in my life, which I'll, I'll mention in, in passing, at least, during the course of the talk. So my teacher wrote several unedited journals. Some of you know him and some of you don't. But he just wrote as things came to him about topics that were, uh, I think, essential to consider on the spiritual path. In the, year, in the couple of years before he died, he wrote a, a few particularly poignant journals. Lee had a, a potent way of teaching. He used humor in a way to show to me that it was it's possible to have like inner freedom and also to consider deeply poignant subjects rather than to live a life in which we avoid them and kind of push them aside. And it communicated the need for a, a strong intention to work with reality in order to really traverse the spiritual path. So I'd like to start by reading an excerpt uh, about death. He says, death, dying, this was written on January 18th, 2009, in what we refer to as the Pink Journal. Death, dying. What is it about this transition that we find ourselves clinging, sometimes desperately, to our resistance to it, to what we call life? But is it really life that we wish to prolong, or is it attachment-seeking sentiment? Even as many of us have experienced with the passing death of our parents, if one is quite elderly, doddering perhaps, there is frequently a fierce unwillingness to let go. To let go of what? <clears throat> our bedroom in the old age home? Our old fedora? Our enthusiasm for mashed potatoes? Our nostalgic memories of our youth? And if we are younger, even quite young, and have children still dependent on our care, or a loving partner, or a substantial material resource, or physical beauty, or thriving professional or artistic life, even then, what? What is it actually that we cling to with such tenacity and even devotion? It is useful to think deep and hard on this question. Let's do that for a moment. <laughs> All right, that's enough. I mean, <laughs> it may prove quite worthwhile, profitable even, to figure out these issues, 
The issues of our clinging, our identifications to our dreamish images, our wish to make solid the intangible and inherently empty emptiness So if and when it is our time to confront this phenomenon called death, we can respond as adults with grace, dignity, and nobility. So to say that our wish to make solid the intangible and inherently empty, I mean, it's not like like reality isn't real. I mean, like our lives aren't real. It's that it doesn't last. And to hold on to it, therefore, um, it's um, is a useless endeavor. And yet that's what we try to do. So it's empty in the sense that, you know, it doesn't last. I would like to bring some considerations from the spiritual traditions for us to kind of sit with. He says that, is it true, is it possible, is there no more? What of love, what of freedom, what of truth? Is love, freedom, truth destroyed by death? As is quite surely and absolutely the immediate and personal relationship to all that we cling to. These are the questions that it would profit you greatly to answer to whatever degree you can before they slap you in the face, so to speak. In fact, you can allow this simple little essay to catalyze your investigation even now as you read. You cannot fail to find value in such an investigation. You've all heard of the Upanishads. Close to 40, I think 40 years ago, even longer, I read some of them. And I was confused, but also fascinated by the teaching. Because to me, it was like completely conceptual. Largely, that is the case today as well. But things change. Work deepens over time. So there are um, 108 Upanishads that are at the core of the Hindu religion. They're part of the Vedas. I won't go into so much about this, but there's four different Vedas, and they're divided into different sections, and the Upanishads are one of those sections. Maybe there were more of them at some time, and they were written by, it said, rishis who embodied insights that were written about in the Upanishads about uh, non-duality, about one's existence as all of this, and not just as the separate person one assumes oneself to be. There was a realizer named Shankara who lived in the 8th century who wrote about 10 of these. They were written in the 5th century BCE or 8th century BCE. This one in particular was written at that time, and it's called Katha, K-A-T-H-A, Upanishad. Shankara wrote about like 10 of these, which have become known as the principal Upanishads, and one of these is Tata. So Tata Upanishad is a story about a boy who lives with his father, who is an ostensibly spiritual man, and who gives up his possessions. But his son notices that his sacrifice is weak. I mean, he's giving up cows that are like near death that don't give milk anymore, that you know, are ready to kill over. And he says to his father, to whom will you give me? The father has given away his cows. To whom will you give me? If you're going to give things away. And the father gets mad and says, to the God of death. So the boy goes to meet Yama in this mythological story. And he comes to his doorstep and uh, Yama isn't there. So he spends three nights just waiting for the god of death to return. And then he finally does. And Yama says, well, you know, since you've waited for me and I haven't been able to provide hospitality to you for three days, I grant you three boons. The boy's name is Nachiketa. Nachiketa says, well, for my first wish, I would like my father to forgive me, to not be anxious or stressed when I come back. 
And <clears throat> the God of death says, no problem, done. And Machikata says, I would like to learn for my seventh wish, the home ceremony, the fire sun. God of death teaches him this over the course of some time. And then it's time for Machikata's third wish. And he asks to understand the mystery. And the God of death says, no, really, you don't want to know this. You don't want to ask about this. Even the gods are confused about this. Ask for something material. Ask for success or wealth or happiness. Ask for something different. Because this is not something you want to ask about. And, um, but Nachiketa is determined. He says, there, who else is going to teach me about this? Everything else is impermanent. Nothing else is going to last. I want to, I need to know. I don't know what the God of Deaths would look like with a big, broad smile, but apparently he was pleased and uh, <laughs> grants the boy the boon and teaches him. These are some of the things that he says from the Kappa Upanishad. The self, capital S, is the omniscient Lord. He is not born. He does not die. He is neither cause nor effect. The ancient one is unborn, imperishable, eternal. Though the body be destroyed, he is not killed. I read this when I was like 21. What is, you know, this discussion about the Atma. What is that? What are they referring to? The self is not known through study of the scriptures nor through subtlety of the intellect. So we are considering these things conceptual. Nor through much learning, but by him who longs for him, is he known. Verily unto him does the self reveal his true being. By learning a man cannot know him, if he desist not from evil, if he control not his senses, if he quiet not his mind, and practice not meditation. I'm reading this um, in my office when I'm like, you know, a kid just kind of out of school on my lunch hour. I can pretty much um, guarantee that there was nobody reading the Upanishads at the place that I worked at the time. But I really wanted to understand something. The wise, knowing self as eternal, Seek not the things that pass away. What is within us is also without. Oh, this is like mystical. What is without is also within. He who sees difference between what is within and what is without goes evermore from death to death. I mean, it seems obvious that I'm over here and you're out there on the screen. In, in, and we're in Zoom land here, and that we're distinct, separate individuals under, under assumption. We go from death to death. Recently, I've, I've been doing some editing for a book of talks that my teacher gave, and uh, one of them is on the Gospel of Thomas. It wasn't one of the Gospels that, you know, made the cut. I think for pretty obvious reasons, actually, when you really study it. One of the things that Jesus said really related to this statement in the Upanishads. He says, when you make the two one, and when you make the inner as the outer, and the outer as the inner, dot, 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 then shall you enter the kingdom. And also, it says... The, the disciples say, tell us how our end will be. And Jesus says, for where the beginning is, there shall be the end. Blessed is he who shall stand at the beginning, and he shall know the end, and he shall not taste death. It seems like there have been, in every time and place, bona fide realizers who have said the same thing. A consideration of death in the spiritual traditions. 
that which is awake from the Katha Upanishad, that which is awake in us, even while we sleep, shaping in dream the objects of our desire, that indeed is pure, that is Brahman, the divine. And that verily is called the immortal. All the worlds have their being in that. There are two selves, the apparent self and the real self, with a capital S. Of these, it is the real self, and he alone, who must, who must be felt as truly existing. To the man who has felt him as truly existing, he reveals his innermost nature. I know the self to be pure and immortal, yea, pure and immortal. Only one who has realized the self really knows eternal peace. To none else, to none else. So part of the practice in, in the tradition that I come from is study with the understanding that what we study is um, conceptual and primarily, but also that it kind of seeps into your being so that the, the question resonates. How many people have read the Castaneda literature? I can't see all of you, so I don't know. Would you raise your hands? It's uh, really wonderful material. Uh, a Yaqui Indian named Don Juan teaches Carlos Castaneda, who is the author of um, several books about the way of the warrior, teaching that resonates with other traditional paths. And one day, Don Juan. After, after Carlos has gone through the experiences that are written about in a few books, I think two books, Tales of Power, Don Juan tells Castaneda, tells Carlos, that he wants to um, teach him the essence of the sorcerer's way, something like that. And he, ha- he dresses up in a suit, and he meets Carlos Castaneda, and tells him that he wants to tell him something of great importance. And Carlos says, what is the topic, Don Juan? And Don Juan says, the totality of oneself. And he takes him to a restaurant and with some humor, begins to engage Carlos and the waitresses come over. And you know, whether this is true or not, I mean, who the heck knows? He tells him that there are two parts of ourselves. I was just reading this recently and relating this to part of the Upanishad that I just read, like that there are two different parts of ourselves. And he says, he calls them the tonal and the noir. The tonal is the organizer of the world, Don Juan says. Perhaps the best way of describing its monumental work is to say that on its shoulders rests the task of setting the chaos of the world in order. He says that the tonal begins at birth and ends at death. It seems to me like this relates to our identity and the way that we look at the world, the way that we perceive it, all of our opinions, and all of that is relative. It all goes. So Polo says, um, if the tonal is everything we know about ourselves and our world, one thing is the noir. And Don Juan says, the noir is that part of us for which there is no description, no words, no names, no feelings, no knowledge. Carlos asked, what about God? What about, what about higher consciousness? I think it's his consciousness, I'm not sure. And they're sitting at this table in a restaurant, and Don Juan takes the salt shaker and says, no, God is like this salt shaker, perhaps. And uh, consciousness is like this chili pepper. Basically, that anything that we can name, we have a concept of, and that's not it. What about consciousness? We've named that. What we're referring to here comes from the tonal, that part of ourselves. And not this nameless other part of ourselves. And he says that the tonal dazzles us with its cunningness and forces us to obliterate the slightest inkling of the other part of the true pair in the wall. 
there is this part of us that we've completely forgotten, that we lose touch with early in life, that is free, unfettered. The art of dying in the after-death state, and then I'll, then I'll ask for a few comments or questions. Buddhist teaching says that the deepest reason we're afraid of death is because we don't know who we are. They refer to this, I would say, part of ourselves that Don Juan referred to as the Nawal, as this sky-like primordial nature, which is hidden. We're just not in touch with this. Every one of us here today, it's, it's there in us, but it's hidden. There have been teachers, beings, masters, for whom it has not been. Seems like to me. Great teachers, their chief, many Indian masters, Buddhist masters, point the way. Certain moments in life are more powerfully charged with potential to awaken our true nature. And the greatest of these is death. In the Buddhist tradition, life and death is seen as a whole, as a series, a long series, without beginning or end, of constantly changing transitional realities, which are they call bardos. Now, when you think of bardo, most uh, probably everyone has heard that word. I mean, you think of the after-death state, the state between death and rebirth, if you believe in such things. You know, most people think of Bardo's in those terms, the state between death and rebirth. But really, and does this make sense? Um, Bardo's are happening, like, all the time. I mean, we are right now in a Zoom Bardo. I don't know about you, but I am. I'm looking at people's faces, <laughs> and I'm looking at my own face, and, I'm, you know, here we are. It's a transitional reality, which will last another 40 minutes, 45 minutes or so. <laughs> you know, actually, though, as I studied Buddhism a little bit more, I'm not a Buddhist. Uh, Buddhism refers to four part of states. Life. All of life is a border. And within that border, there are other borders. I mean, when you walk into another room, it's a border. I think of borders as being in really odd or unfamiliar territory. Like, you know, if you go to a Star Wars movie and they're at a bar and these, you know, aliens are like all sitting around with three heads and whatever they have, you know, that seems like it's a border. But everything is a border. When we are in situations, okay, we can call them borders, or just not transitional states, where we are off balance, there really is a possibility of realizing that there's much more to who we assume ourselves to be than what we think. Most of the time, when we're in that kind of situation, all we want to do is get comfortable, get back to a familiar circumstance where we feel safe. I mean, most people, I think, don't really pay that much attention to those things and what value might be in. But as I mentioned, the transitional state, which has the greatest potential to awaken us to our true nature, is death. So I'm going to read uh, a little bit from um, the Tibetan book of Living and Dying by Sogyal Rinpoche. You know, there's been a lot that's gone on um, for him and his students. But I would say that a lot of the information that he's written about is worthy of consider. He grew up in Tibetan Buddhist culture, steeped He says that for what happens at the moment of death is that the ordinary mind and its delusions die. So that's going to happen if you believe this. And in that gap, the boundless sky-like nature of our mind is uncovered. The essential nature of mind is the background to the whole of life and death, like the sky, 
which folds the whole universe in its embrace. So in terms of this identification of four different bardos, there's life, there's dying, and there's what he refers to as dharmata, the true or essential nature of reality, which we are uh, inevitably will encounter when we die. When they say that we're going to face ourselves when we die, this speaks to that. That is going to happen for everyone, according to Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. But the thing is, is that um, it's really possible that we, um, we miss it or, you know, don't, uh, don't stay with it. Some other things come up. But the buffering function of the body is removed at death and our experience is heightened. I mean, I've heard like seven times as much it's heightened seven times as much as the reality that we experience in this world, or ten times as much. But it's, according to Tibetan Buddhism, uh, our experiences will be really heightened. And if there are issues, if there are things that we have not resolved in life, it's likely that they will come along and distract us or take us, take us away from the experience of dharmata. The fundamental nature of mind will naturally manifest at death. So I think just a little bit personally, my wife and I lived together for how long? 43 years. And we were married for about 35 of them. And uh, she had a long experience with cancer. And I always thought that, you know, I tried to just keep an open mind and see what would happen. We had, like, tremendous doctors and tremendous support uh, in our community. And it actually seemed like things were getting better. Two months ago. And then one day, everything was different. We had just talked to a doctor the day before and um, seemed to have gotten a really good report, but there was something else going on. I won't go into a lot of detail, but we went to the hospital and within hours, she had passed. And it shouldn't have been a shock to me, but in one way, but in another way, it was completely unexpected. The reason why I say this is because uh, what really shocked me about this experience, I'm, I'm still, and I will be for probably for the rest of my life, like working with this, this whole experience of releasing something in myself that I had really held on to as part of my own identity. But, you know, at the same time, being deeply bonded and loving her, and really, really wanting to do this, do this right, do the best we could with this transitional situation in those hours. But what happened was when she passed in our room, like just about midnight, I mean, I didn't even have this language at the time, but it really looked like she had, had entered the bardo of the Dharmata. I mean, she was radiant. I was just shocked by this. And I, I stayed in the room with her like all night. I mean, they wanted to, you know how it is in our, in our culture. You know, they wanted to take her right to the funeral home. And that was not happening. <laughs> that was just not happening. Fortunately, we were with hospice, and they gave us a little grace, so gave me a little grace. And I kept waking up during the night and looking at her face, and it was beautiful. Now, 
I don't I don't want to set this up as an as the ideal or anything like that. I just say it because it, it's it was my experience. I mean, I may well go kicking and screaming, and I really think that however you die, it's okay. Our own karmas are what we have to work through, and our true nature is is there and it's going to manifest. But it's an important thing to be with someone in a way that's accepting and allows them to transition. Gives gives them permission to let go. This is very hard if it's just somebody that you don't know so so well. That's different. But if it's someone that you really love, on the one hand, it's much harder, but on the other, there is a lot of motivation to allow them because you want the best for that person. In, in our um, tradition, we have a death prayer. I won't read it. But um, there is a similar thing in Tibetan Buddhism that goes way back. And I would like to read that to you from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Now, when the border of dying dawns upon me, I will abandon all grasping, yearning, and detachment. Enter undistracted into clear awareness of the teaching and reject my consciousness into the space of unborn rigma, essential nature. As I leave this compound body of flesh and blood, I will know it to be a transitory illusion. Again, not like it's not, it's not real, but it's, it's unreal in the sense that it doesn't last. What does last? The traditions point to this. So, let's consider it. Like, how does anybody know this? So, Yorempeche says that the source of this uh, is the enlightened mind of the masses throughout history. And that's hard for Westerners to accept. But just having known my own teacher and having seen the way that he approached that, as if it was another boredom to go through, with, it seemed to me a stable mind, a really stable mind. We do put a lot of uh, stock in the teaching. So, just a little bit more. So, Rinpoche also says that. The teachings make it clear that if all we know of mind is the aspect of mind, remember I was talking about these two parts of ourselves. If all we know is that aspect of mind that dissolves when we die, we will be left with no idea of what continues, no knowledge of the new dimension of the deeper reality of the nature of mind. So it is vital for us to familiarize ourselves with the nature of mind while we are still alive. I mean, vital in the sense that if, if we are really passionate about knowing who we are. On the other hand, it's always there anyway. Karma is what we have been and what we do now uh, will produce further karma. So I think it pays to consider what we do now and how we relate to all the different elements of reality. Are we open to them? Even things that we disagree with and dislike. And that's a practice. I do have some more I want to say, but I'd like to open it up now and see if there's any comments or questions, and then I'll end with a few points about practicing in this life. Anyone? I mean, is there anything that got mentioned that strikes you? One night, I guess I had released a lot of pain the night before. And when I let go of all my emotions and it was like, it was like I, like I had finally surrendered. i had finally gave up all my anger, which created physical um, problems. Yeah. It was just, um, it was just gone. So when those kind of experiences happen, I would say a lot of times they are real. And the thing is that, you know, we don't have a matrix to hold them. 
the, the transformation that we undergo deepens over time. Those experiences could add something or, or like create something in us that we kind of build upon. The whole perspective on the path over time deepens. My experience has been it becomes less about like me and more about how, how can I be of some service? How can I contribute? There's freedom in like not being so self preoccupied. It takes some time to integrate all questions. Anyone? I wanted to thank you for your willingness to share that most precious time that you had. Thank you. I have mixed feelings about speaking about it. On the other hand, I'm kind of really moved to to do that um, right now. Well, I appreciate it. BJ? Yeah. I have fear of death because I don't know who I am. And I hadn't thought about that before. I hadn't heard it before. So I've been running that through my mind, wondering what is it that I have to understand to get to that point? And this seems to like go into other things that I've been reading about. You know, seek and ye will ye shall find. And it seems to me that it's not the finding that's important here, it's the seeking. And so that's what I'm going to take away from that little idea about uh, fear of death, because I do not know who I am. Not to get to that point where I'm not afraid of death, but to can just continue to um, find out more about who I am. That's the journey. Not to get anywhere, but just to keep seeking. Um, I'm sure there'll be things found along the way. But as soon as I find something, perhaps that journey will stop. So I'm not sure if that's what's the important part here. I know the work always talks about aim and the work that's needed to get to that aim. But it's the work that's important. I think we need aims for sure, but I value the work more, I think. Well, as I understand aim, that's different from a goal, not like you're going to get somewhere finally and that's the end. Name something continuous to continue to surrender. I mean, it's not like you do that one time and it's done. Whatever it is that you would identify as, as a name, to be of service in some way can be a name. And that, never, that doesn't end. That's why you know, the spiritual teaching isn't like real popular. Because it's like we want to get somewhere and we don't want to hear that at all, at all, that um, everything relative dies. Oh, great. Sign me up for that. I'm, I'm anxious to, like, to go there. Anybody else for now? I have maybe 15 minutes more of things that I would like to say, but I'm actually more interested in anything that you might want to say. Hey, no problem. Let me, let me complete what I wanted to cover. So, let's see. There's this saying, bind yourself with love to one you want to learn from. I can't even remember where I heard that. But there are people who have organic knowledge. And to, to learn from those people, if you have the opportunity to connect with them and stay connected, can be very useful. In our school, in our tradition, and this isn't just in our tradition, practitioners like follow the teacher. You know, my teacher, Lee, says that he has followed his teacher, Yogi Ramsarat Kumar, from lifetime to lifetime. I've met Yogi Ramsarat Kumar, and if he wasn't the shining, living example of that ineffable part of ourselves and I don't know what could possibly be that and we follow from lifetime to lifetime we go from lifetime to lifetime based on our karma what kind of karma are we incurring what's the trajectory that we want our life to go in and it has to feel right 
So this section is called Practice in Life as Preparation for Death. It's an important subject. Teachings, there are teachings in the traditions that something continues or that it can continue. Something continues, some kind of awareness, but uh, in, in the Gurdjieff work, they talk about not having a soul. They talk about having to make a soul. We're born with something, but uh, it needs to be developed in order to what? In order to be able to relate with bardo after bardo after bardo that we encounter, including ones where we drop the body. I'm only speculating. But I um, was reading in a book by Red Hawk, Self-Observation, his uh, definition of a soul. I was interested in that. And, you know, he studied the Gertrude Fork for a long time. And uh, he says that the soul is variously called being, Atman, spirit. It is attention or consciousness, undeveloped in ordinary life, developed only through special effort, through conscious effort. My reference point for that is being willing to relate with what comes up for me, to observe that, to be with that, like without judgment. Or if I have judgment, to not have judgment about the judgment. Doing a certain kind of spiritual work, I think you need more than a book to be able to really learn, develop something. I also just read something in Jean de Salzman's book, The Reality of Being, where she says that when we know our true I, our essential nature, something emerges from the depth of our being and takes over. Have you ever experienced that? Because there are times when that is animated in us and we're just moved. No problem. It's behind the mind. We don't see, you know, we're not educated in these ways in the West, but the mind is just occluding, as they say. You know, the metaphor, which fits pretty well, I think, of a cloud, of the clouds covering the sun. The sun is still there. And then all of a sudden, the sun breaks through. It's infinite, divine, eternal. We call it the soul. She says, there is no death. But somebody just died. Everything relative died. And there is pain, there is suffering, there is grief. I'm going to experience that for probably the rest of my life. But I can't deny that there's truth to this as well. I mean, I remember having read that Suzuki Roshi, an amazing Zen master who came from Japan, I think in the 60s or maybe the late 50s, said, we die and we do not die. The coding is used up, the form disintegrates, death is an end. The end of everything known. It is a fearful thing because we cling to the known. So in life, we could practice not clinging or grasping to the known. When it comes up that we have to, we have to let go of our old fedora because it gets lost. Or we don't get mashed potatoes for dinner that night. We expect it to. But life is. It is always here, even if for us it is the unknown. We can know life only after we know death. We must die to the known and enter the unknown. We need to die voluntarily. We have to free ourselves from the known. You've heard this statement, die before you die, supposedly said by the prophet Muhammad. Once free... We can enter the unknown, the void, the complete stillness, where there is no deterioration, the only state in which we can find out what life is and what love is. Which is real, what I am conscious of or consciousness itself. Deep down in my being, I am already what I see. This is the impotence of my whole search. When consciousness is here, I realize that consciousness is me. I and all that surrounds me are the same consciousness. My true nature is consciousness. You know, this kind of drives me crazy. When I do these kind of things, and I say these kind of things, or other people say these kind of things, like 
my true nature is consciousness. Yeah, and what is that your living experience? What does that really mean? You know, all of that. But it, it, again, this points in a direction. Practices of self-observation, attention, surrender, build a matrix in the body where it seems to me like we build a soul by, by doing this, by, by working on ourselves in the right way. In our school, we have all kinds of practices, and those are meant to help us build a matrix, or you might say build a soul, I think. I mean, we have certain conditions, which we refer to uh, as um, <clears throat> things that can help us to stabilize our minds like meditation, like study, diet, exercise. And I know that when I do those things regularly, that there is stability in my life. There is more stability in my life. So that I'm not just blown like a leaf in the wind, especially when a huge transition occurs. So those practices are helpful but really, spiritual practice is about working with our minds, not just the doing of these things. Exercise, meditation, diet, whatever, chanting, but it's the way that we do them that um, is beneficial. To actually remember that this reality is all that exists for me. Two or three more points, I guess. There was a guy who died recently in our community. And he was really pretty stable. He had a pretty stable mind. And his experience of dying was profound. Profound. I, I just got to spend maybe 20 minutes or half an hour before he died. And he looked at me and said, while I was with him, no big deal. And he said, when it's time to go, just go. And it was like, very helpful. I will, I'll always remember that. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully at the time when I'm in that kind of situation. But what about pain, suffering, and grief? Okay, I got to take us to one more burial place here. Because I just think that this is really essential to kind of at least contemplate. This is way beyond my pay grade. This is way beyond my pay grade, but I know the truth of this. You know, I, I just ask you to consider it. Um, so this is a, a book called The Essential Swami Ramdas. Swami Ramdas, Swami Papa Ramdas was my teacher's teacher teacher. And he says, the object of human life is to liberate it from its self-imposed limitation and bondage. God is all merciful. Pray to him. Oh God, lead me from the unreal to the real, from darkness to light, from death to immortality. When he makes you pass through many a painful ordeal of life, it is only to awaken you to the ultimate reality. World is a great school of experience, but it is impermanent, unreal. Think about this. Pain and sorrow purify your heart and free you from your illusions. Then it is that you are eager and earnest in your quest for an existence beyond the tribulations of this world. Merciful and loving God is when he sets you on this quest, but the path leading to it is fraught with severe trials a necessary condition for the attainment of the divine goal. goal. Behind all this turmoil, acute pangs of misery, anxiety, and suffering, there is a spotless state of absolute peace. That is your goal. All pass away, but he who is that absolute peace is eternal. So when pain and suffering occur in life, I don't know about you, but my first reaction is, Get me out of this. Not like I look to dive into pain and suffering, but when it occurs, to remember this, 
is really helpful. And not to push it away, because if I do, I feel like my karma is going to be, it's going to come back and come back and come back. And to actually see this as God's mercy. There was a guy who spoke at an event that I just attended, and he was talking about a woman who was dying, who looked on her situation as the blessings that were like, wow. So it's occurred to me on the spiritual path that I've been kind of dragged along by the ear, and little by little, not really due to anything of my own, I just come to a deeper place of practice. The sages, illumined with wisdom, proclaim that the worlds are God himself in manifestation, and the entire aspect of it is lila or play. Creation, preservation, and destruction constitute the movement of this play. Creation and preservation, hey, they're okay. The destruction part, yeah, that's part of it. The worlds are God himself. Okay, so let's not use theistic language. It's like the absolute, ultimate reality. Difficult indeed for the rationalist to reconcile these workings of God with his attributes of love, mercy, and peace. All these things happen. Tidal waves, earthquakes. Like, how can that be God's mercy? Still, the mystic sage maintains that it is all God's work and all for good. The path of salvation, that is, the realization of freedom, lies through suffering and tribulation. The sufferer is blessed, and he who is touched by the woes of the sufferer and thus sacrifices his energy and wealth for his relief is also blessed. For suffering and sacrifice soften the heart of man and free it from pride, passion, and ignorance, the essential thing needed for his liberation from the thraldom of the individual sense and its fetters. I can't deny painful experience and grief opens me up. I don't like it. Why is it like this? It's just the way it is. If we don't like get with the program and align with that, we're going to struggle and suffer more. And from what teachers like Swami Ramdas say, you come to a place of peace. So do not depreciate the value of suffering. It is an element essential for the evolving life. Do not be afraid of suffering or attempt to run away from it. Realizing its great need and use in the upward march of the soul to the goal of its immortal consciousness, welcome all the trials and struggles of life and derive therefrom increased powers of the will so that you can make the very sufferings as stepping stones to the heights of absolute peace and bliss. Last paragraph. Those who have achieved this victory alone know the sweet uses of long-suffering. It is they who proclaim that God, the creator of the worlds, is all goodness and benevolence. They do not find fault with the conditions existing in the world. They do not find fault with the conditions existing in the world? Wow. Because they know that the darkest moments of life herald the dawn of the radiant light of everlasting peace and happiness. So glorify suffering and understand its true purpose in your life. Make the right use of it. Instead of being cowed down by it, Raise yourself and aspire for the higher and nobler aims of life. Wow. I know if you are able to kind of hang in there and listen to the to readings like that, wherever you are, but that's the challenge. One thing that I would say that my teacher said was that in dying, you will not lose anything real. Whatever, whatever is real is not affected by that. So, hey, I can't say that I, I know that, but I'll, I'll consider that. I think I'll end with one statement <clears throat> from the Pink Journal. To me, I take this as support to go deeper. 
until, uh, until we, each of us, deals with death straight ahead and free from illusion, projection, fear of loss, and doubt, we will be quite stymied in our attempts to fully profit from the path. It's an important issue. When it's not so relevant in our life, we've got all these things going on that we're um, busy with. It's easy to lose sight of the impermanence of our lives and who we are. We, we can remember that, though. We can bring that up and remind ourselves. <laughs>